Let's go before the Lord pray and ask for his blessing upon his word. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you've appointed for us to gather around the teaching of the revelation of Christ Jesus. Even in the Old Testament scriptures, we pray that you help me to speak faithfully and clearly and also the same for your people to hear clearly from your spirit what he is declaring to us about the person of Christ and what he did for us to save us from our slavery to sin and his condemnation. We honor you, glorify you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Exodus 14. Good morning, one and all, whoever is tuned in. God be praised for the new year again. Exodus 14, and we are going to read the whole chapter. Moses recorded for us and said, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth between Middor and the sea opposite Baal Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled in the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord had in the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihiroth before Baal, Zaphon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may save the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to save the Egyptians than what we should, than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. 
And I indeed will hide in the house of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I'll gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and a darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the one did not come near the other all that night. Verse 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a war to them on the right, on their right hand and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And that is the word of the Lord. We have three titles that are very much related, uh, essentially the same title. Number one, these Egyptians you shall see no more. These Egyptians you shall see no more. And number two title is Israel saw the Egyptians dead. That's what they saw. Israel saw the Egyptians dead. And the summary of that is title number three. The Egyptians are dead. <laughs> the Egyptians are dead. God wants you to know that in the wake of everything that has happened in the history of Israel in Egypt for 430 years, that is, this is the conclusion of the matter. The Egyptians are dead. So, you all are not new to the way that we preach from the Old Testament. We preach Christ from every text of Scripture. And that without apology. Because if we do not do that, then the Bible 
especially the Old Testament, becomes just a storybook for sending the kids to bed. But we know very well that it is the testimony of Christ. All of it testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel matters that God has revealed in the New Testament. He had already spoken to in the Old Testament, but in a different way, in a hidden, shadowy way that need his revelation and illumination. The Holy Spirit has to come and reveal to us what those texts of Scripture were speaking of in reference to the person and work of Christ. And it frustrates some preachers and even some professing Christians that they don't see things this way. And so they resolve to dismiss it and say, oh, he's just making it up. You can't consistently be making it up. <laughs> and the problem is they're hermeneutic. Hermeneutics means the science of reading, the way that you interpret the scriptures or any writing for that matter. None can open the scriptures without a Christ-centered way of reading them. He is the key that opens all the understanding. What he opens is known. What he closes cannot be known. <laughs> okay. But the matter of the understanding, as far as I'm concerned, is very accessible to us because we know who the teacher is. We go to God and ask for his understanding and he freely and readily gives understanding. That's how I get it. I just go to him and say, Lord, show me. <laughs> I have no commentary that I go to read. I go to him and say, Lord, show me what you would have me to understand about this story and what you would have your people to understand about the story. And that's what he gives me. So, many are still bewitched with the thinking that seminary is where the gospel understanding is given. They'll say, oh, you didn't go to Bible college. <laughs> and so they come out bewitched that if they could just master a little Hebrew and Greek, then that translates to seeing and understanding of the gospel. No, it doesn't work like that. The gospel is a revelation from God. Remember, the native Hebrews, the Jews, even Israel, they were given the scriptures and yet they did not understand them. They did not comprehend them. They could memorize them word for word, the whole Old Testament, but they had no clue what they were speaking of. Even the Greeks in the time of Jesus, there were a lot of native Greek speakers, even among the Hebrews, who did not understand the gospel, even though they were fluent in the language. Why? Because the gospel 
is spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. It can only be taught by God. God is the one who teaches the gospel. And today we have much gospel testimony to stitch together so that you can see the progression and conclusion of the matter of the gospel story as God presented it to us in Egypt, in the story of Israel and their slavery in Egypt. Israel went into Egypt with much pomp and fanfare on account of Joseph and the glory that he had in Egypt, being the prime minister of Egypt at this point, because he had been elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, because he had averted much starvation because of his God-given wisdom. And so he brought his family to Egypt. So Joseph had gone to Egypt by way of slavery by his brothers who sold him to the Ishmaelites, who later sold him to Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. And if you recall, the Ishmaelites were the grandchildren of Hagar. Ishmael was the son of Hagar with Abraham. So they were the grandchildren of Hagar. And that to say they represented the testimony of their grandmother, the testimony of the law as Hagar represented Mount Sinai, the covenant of the law, the covenant that brings into slavery of sin. So it is no surprise that Israel, through Joseph, went into slavery by the testimony of the grandchildren of Hagar. See the connection. There's no commentary where you can read that. God has given you that. <laughs> so there's no sin apart from law. And the law in God's design and purpose was given to bring people under bondage by demanding perfection. A thing no creature is able to give to the law. And once you fail in one part of the law, guess what? You're condemned. You're under bondage. So the law was never for freedom. And so we quickly found out that there arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. After Joseph had died, there came a pharaoh who did not regard anything that Joseph had done for Egypt. And so this king played the politics of xenophobia against Israel and determined to weaken them by imposing heavy burdens on them to enslave them to hard labor and causing the children of Israel to build cities that they would never possess. And that to say, the law will put you to work, will put you to slavery, and have you build a righteousness that will never benefit you in any way in respect of 
salvation. All you're laboring under the law benefits you nothing with regards to eternal matters. So Pharaoh put taskmasters over Israel and of course Israel complained because of the hard labor. So they determined to have some audience with the king to say, can you do something about this? This is too hard. And that will take us to our first scripture reading from Exodus 5. Exodus 5, 7 to 9. And we're going to keep working our way to Exodus 14. Exodus 5, 7 to 9. This was the pronouncement by Pharaoh to Israel. He says, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quart of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. For they are idle. Therefore they cry out saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it. And let them not regard false words. Pay attention to the quarter of bricks. Pharaoh said they shall not be reduced. This is a very important point to reiterate and understand in the gospel context. And that to say the righteousness of the law does not ever get reduced just because you and I cannot meet it. It remains unbendable. It remains the same. It's a daily quarter of righteousness. So anyone who claims that they're doing the law is not telling the truth. They do not understand the matter of the law and of the gospel. But the people of Israel were saying they wanted time to go and sacrifice to their God. And Pharaoh said, those are false words. (laughs) Why? Because it is only by way of sacrifice that is, the death of Christ, that the righteous requirement of the law is met and the people are set free from their burdens. It is only by way of sacrifice, only by way of the death of Christ that the heavy burdens that were imposed by the law are lifted. Okay? Because the law demands that you go daily and gather straw for yourself, for your, for yourself to work your own righteousness and to do that every single day of your life. You have to meet your daily quota. Pharaoh said they have to meet their daily quota of righteousness every day. From when you were born, To the second you die, and I say good luck to you who claim to keep the law. (laughs) Because God requires it from when you are born to the second that you die. You have to give the law 
the righteousness that it demands. But grace, in contrast, says the righteousness that you require was already accomplished by the God-given sacrifice and therefore rest. It was already accomplished. But I need you to know that Pharaoh is not saying these things out of his own understanding. It was God who was preaching through Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh was dismissive of all the objections from Israel's four men who came to him to have the burdens reduced for the people. And the point being salvation, which is justification from sin and this bondage, do not come from the law. They do not come from our laboring in obedience. Because salvation by design is God's inheritance given to Christ and it is not of law, it is not of human accomplishment, but of grace. It is of faith. And of faith means of doing nothing. Lazy boy theology. It is all of Christ. It's lazy boy. And I know people do not like to hear the language of doing nothing in salvation. People don't like to hear that. That it's all done. All you have to do is rest in that knowledge. They want to labor under the burdens of Pharaoh. And they're not understanding Paul's arguments in the book of Galatians either. Because in the book of Galatians, some people, the Judaizers came and they said, well, yes, it's by grace, but you have to add back Moses to grace. You have to add law. You can't just leave people with nothing to do. Just give them a little bit of law. And Paul said, no, that's another gospel. Anyone who preaches that gospel must be accursed. So God then appeared to Moses in the burning bush in the context of that and said he had seen and heard the cry and suffering of his people under the burdens of Pharaoh. And so he had come down to deliver them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And Christ Jesus is he who appeared to Moses to speak of the deliverance of his people, a deliverance which Moses could not do even by the many miracles. In other words, Moses representing the testimony of the law could not deliver the people of God from their slavery to Pharaoh. They were not delivered by Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you see, that is Exodus 6 verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For compelled by my strong hand, he will release them, and by my strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. If the people shall be set free, God says, it shall only be by his 
mighty hand. If the people shall be set free from the condemnation of their sin, it shall only be by the strong hand of the crucified Christ. It is Christ who is speaking to Moses. Because those are the only hands that delivered his people from the condemnation and slavery of sin. But God was preaching. And so he did not just come and deliver the people that day or that weekend. A series of miracles by way of plagues had to happen to show again that people need more than miracles for salvation to happen. And so nine plagues were brought to bear on the land of Egypt. And the constant refrain is that God hadn't Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. <laughs> but I have a question. Why hadn't Pharaoh's heart if you want the people to be set free? Why hadn't he said? Because God was working to bring the knowledge of the true condition, the true condition that has to be met and fulfilled if one has to be justified from the condemnation of sin. That's what God was leading to. Even though he said, for this purpose I raised Pharaoh that I may demonstrate, show my power through him. The power of what? A lot of people just think of destruction. It is the power of salvation. <laughs> that I may show my power of salvation because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So demonstrate the power of God unto salvation by the hardening of Pharaoh. Because once people have come under the power of sin and law, then they can only be set free one way. There's only one way to free them. Exodus 11 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. So God says, one more plague. How did he know that this one was the plague? One more plague. The final plague. The biggest plague of them all. What would happen? Exodus 11, 4 to 6. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'll go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the hand mill, and the firstborn of the animals. The firstborn of Egypt should die. And in this death, and by this death, Pharaoh would immediately set Israel free. 
the firstborn of Egypt, even of Pharaoh, represents or represented the firstborn of God, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the firstborn of God by reason of rank, of authority, of power, of eternality, of pre-existence. It is not firstborn in the regards of creation. Christ Jesus is the word of God, the Logos, and he is uncreated in that respect. So he is the firstborn of God in that respect. He is the son of the God who sits on the throne. And when he dies, God says, then Israel shall be set free. <laughs> when he dies, the firstborn of Pharaoh, when he dies, then Israel shall be set free. But Christ Jesus is all-encompassing. And so God had to provide more detail to this condition of the salvation of his people. So as he spoke to the death of the firstborn of Egypt, he also introduced the Passover lamb as concurrent, as explaining what is happening. They are not separate things. They are tied together. Here, Exodus 12, 5 to 8. God said, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the gods. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So the Passover lamb had to be a male, a young one, and without blemish, that is, without sin, in respect of its fulfillment in Christ, because this is pointing to Christ Jesus, without any blame. And of Christ, we hear from the book of Hebrews 7, verse 26, that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So this Passover lamb, God said, had to tabernacle for a few days. It had to live with the people for whom it was supposed to represent in death. It had to live with them for a moment <laughs> and be killed at twilight by the whole assembly, the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And what is that saying? It is saying the Lord Jesus 
had to come and add human flesh and be acquainted with the people for whom he had come to die before being offered as a sacrifice. And we see also the fulfillment of that in the death of the Lord in which the whole congregation of Israel, even of the Jews, were gathered against him to crucify him. God says the whole congregation of Israel should gather around the death and the killing of the Passover lamb. So the whole congregation of the peoples were gathered against the Lord and his anointed one to put him to death. And around twilight, the Lord Jesus gave up the ghost. But God says the blood of the Passover lamb was to be sprinkled on the door lentils and doorposts of each house as God was going to pass through that night pass through the land of Egypt and execute judgment. But then I have a question. Why does he have to pass through and kill the firstborn? Why not kill all the girls in Egypt? Or the grandmothers and grandfathers? What about kill all the politicians? <laughs> I'm sure they had some bad politicians then too. Why not kill all, the, all those bad aunts and uncles? Even the nosy and gossiping neighbors. I'm sure they had plenty of them. No, God says, kill the firstborn. Kill the firstborn. Because the condition of salvation was always in the death of the son, the firstborn, Christ Jesus. And that is to say, salvation was always the work agreed between the father and the son. And this is the thing which much of the church does not understand at all. Salvation has always been 100% about God and for God. 100% about Christ and for Christ. And 100% about the cross. Exodus 12, 13. God says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says the shed blood shall be a sign for you. It shall be a sign for your salvation. You can put your confidence in it. That it will cover you from the judgment to come. And that is saying the cross of Christ the shed blood of Christ is indeed the sure sign that whatever God required of us was met in that shed blood. This is the blood that God says he sees. I shall see the blood. This is the blood that he has regard for as far as obedience and righteousness are concerned. That blood of Christ made complete satisfaction for all our sins 
It is the only thing that God looks to, looks for, to pass over our sins. Sins are not passed over of judgment because of our confession of them, because of our faith and repentance, because of our remorse, nor because of our tears. Sin needs more than tears for there to be atonement. It needs payment. And there's only one acceptable way to make restitution. The death of the firstborn, the death of the Passover lamb, the God-given Passover. And that is say, what God requires for your salvation, God has given. He gives what he requires. And that to say, the blood of Christ is our justification. The blood itself. Once it was shed, that was our justification. Our holiness. Our righteousness. Works do not and cannot justify us before God. Because the Bible says, By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified before him. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law was given to give you and I the knowledge of our sinfulness, but never to make us righteous. So God looks only at the blood of Christ as the condition of your reconciliation with him, your peace with him, your life and righteousness, your life, eternal life, was given on account of the bloodshed of Christ. It is the shed blood of Christ that purchased eternal life for you. You could not have enough vitamin or vitamin supplements <laughs> to earn eternal life by consuming them every day. And as long as the son of Pharaoh had not died, Israel was still under bondage. 5,000 miracles, plagues could have been brought on Egypt. A million more plagues could have been brought on Egypt. Israel was to have remained under bondage. As long as the Passover lamb had not died, Israel was still under bondage and would remain under bondage. As long as the high priest, anointed with oil, had not died, the manslayer who had sought refuge in the city of refuge remained under the confines of the city of refuge. They could not go outside because if they did and they were caught by the avenger of blood, they would be killed. That's number 35. So as long as the high priest had not died, justification had not yet happened for them, they could not go out freely. But as soon as these were offered in death, see, the common denominator is death. As soon as these were offered in death, 
Israel must be set free. It had to be set free. Because Israel has now been justified from all her sins through the shed blood. And as soon as the high priest anointed with oil had died, the manslayer was free. He was now justified from all his sins of murder. And as soon as the Christ is taken to be crucified, the chains came loose on Barabbas, the notorious sinner, the murderer, the thief. Why? Because he had been justified from his sins. So the firstborn of Pharaoh intersects with the Passover lamb. They intersect. They are bearing testimony of the same person. The two give different vantage points of the one person and work of Christ in whom all things find fulfillment. So God instituted the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread which started the following day. And the emphasis with the feast of unleavened bread was for them to eat bread without yeast. That is, bread without influence of yeast. That's speaking to the sinless body of Christ that had no influence of sin. Because when you're making bread, you don't need a whole lot of yeast. You just need a little bit of yeast. And that goes to work through the whole dough of bread. So a little bit of sin is enough to defile you and me. That's the point. So God says, don't eat bread that is yeast. Exodus 12, 26 to 27. God says, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean by this commemoration of the feast? What do you mean by this gospel that you keep repeating? Because God says you're going to have to keep repeating this message. Over the generations, keep saying the same thing. What do you mean by this gospel that you keep repeating? Don't you have something else nice and entertaining? Something for the kids and... Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean by this service? God says, verse 27, that you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. This gospel is what? What shall you say to the children? It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who did what? Who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households by the shed blood. That's the message that he's supposed to repeat. In other words, this declaration is about what Christ did as the Passover Lamb of God in causing or accomplishing our justification 
by striking the Egyptians with his mighty hands and justified that he's delivered his people, setting free his people, the household of God from the hands and power of Pharaoh, the power of sin and death. So Egypt then is a picture of the place of bondage and the elements in it that work bondage. When you get to Egypt, you're going to find yourself under bondage. So the elements that are working in Egypt to bring you under bondage are sin and law. In decrees of Pharaoh and his taskmasters who are the Pictures of the individual commandments of the law. But the law is the taskmaster. Working you every day. Accusing you every day when you don't perform. Causing you to be weary and heavy laden. As Jesus said. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. From what? From trying to make your bricks. (laughs) Making your own righteousness. Getting your own straw for salvation. Jesus says, come to me. You are you are willing and heavenly, and I'll give you rest. Because my burden is light. Easy. It's light. Because it is on him. So in the gospel sense, Egypt is not the place of freedom, but of oppression. And God is, has to come and strike the Egyptians and what they represent in the matter of salvation of his people. So when you see Egypt and Hagar, know that these are proleptic or anticipative of the law. The law has not yet been codified, but God already knows all these things. So he's already preaching before he gave the law because as soon as they come out of Egypt, they're going to go through Mount Sinai and God is going to give the Ten Commandments and the whole covenant of the law. So all these things are looking to the giving of the law and its testimony. But Israel has to leave the reality of it. But before we go to our text under consideration, We have to know that when God redeems his people, they do not come out empty-handed. Exodus 12, 35-36. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So the children of Israel did not leave their place of bondage with nothing. Because when God redeems you, you want to come out with something. They came out with riches, with clothing, and that means righteousness, imputed righteousness, Justification. 
Because righteousness is not given because of faith, but because the Passover died. You have righteousness not because you believe, but because Christ died. Faith is evidence of possession of that righteousness that Christ accomplished for us. So those who say Jesus died, but he did not justify anyone at his death are not telling the truth. They do not understand the transaction. Because the very death of Christ was the justification. That was the payment that cleared your debt. Because he was given over because of our transgressions. So he was making good on what we owed. And we'll briefly visit Exodus 13 on our way to 14. Exodus 13 is a recapitulation of many of the points from chapter 12 with emphasis on remembrance of the feasts, the ordinances that had been instituted but with some additional gospel nuggets. So let's go to verse 11 to 14 of Exodus 13 where God says, And it shall be, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamp, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of men among your sons you shall redeem. God says, well, I have some additional gospel nugget for you to glean. All the firstborn of beasts shall belong to the Lord. You see, God is interested in the firstborn. Why? Because of Christ who is the firstborn of God. But he says, the firstborn of a donkey had to be redeemed with a lamb. God could not own or possess it or put his name to it, to a donkey. Why? Because the donkey was and is the picture of the stubborn sinner. Unless they had been redeemed with a lamb. That is Christ. In other words, our relationship to God and with God is only because of Christ. It is redemptive. Christ Jesus is the only natural son of God. We are children. We are sons by reason of being in the son by redemption and adoption. That's the language that the Bible uses. Redemption and adoption. So we are sons. Otherwise, naturally, we would have been the donkeys. We had to be redeemed by the Lamb. And apart from Christ, God says, "You, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. In other words, kill it. Condemn it to death. Because that's what shall happen 
to all who do not have Christ as their lamb for redemption, condemned to death. Verse 14, Exodus 13, So it shall be, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By the strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And that to say, gospel preaching is a declaration of the message of a work that God already did. The Lord delivered us in the past tense as an accomplished reality by the strength of his hand out of the house of bondage. That's what he did. He delivered us out of the condemnation of sin. Exodus 13, 17 to 18. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines although that was near for God said, Let, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. God led the people through the wilderness. All of God's people who have a wilderness experience. Even though he has ability to save us from the experience of it. <laughs> but see this. God still lives and led them. Even in that wilderness. Just because they are in the wilderness does not mean that God is not there. <laughs> but there are lessons to be learned from the wilderness experience. There was a lot of gospel that was to be preached through Israel's experience in the wilderness. A lot of gospel testimony. Like, um, much of the gospel, wonderful gospel nuggets, they come from the wilderness experience of Israel. Things which we would not have learned had they not experienced that. And with that, we'll go now to our text, Exodus 14, to say, oh, that was the introduction. <laughs> this way, you're able to integrate the understanding of what's really going on. I, I don't want messages that are not connected together. They're very difficult to communicate to, communicate to other people even to yourself. Now you have a very good scope of the movement of the story, where it started and where it's going. So we go to Exodus 14, verse 1 and following. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and come before Pihahiroth between Mido and the sea, opposite Baal, Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So Israel has hit the exit door from Egypt. 
And God still has some things to say to close the gospel testimony through Pharaoh. God says, verse 4, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So God was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and make him stubborn and unyielding. See that the stubbornness was not due to Pharaoh's own power or strength. Pharaoh had no power to resist God. It's impossible. There's no creature who can resist God. (laughs) It was God who was causing him to be stubborn. Yet it was sinful for Pharaoh to disobey a command that he could not carry out. And yet it was God who caused him to disobey. And yet it was not sin for God to cause Pharaoh to do something sinful. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus was the most sinful act done by man because he was a righteous man. He was God in the flesh. And yet, it is God who caused it. Yeah, he had them to gather around Christ to crucify him. He ordained it to happen. All the things that were done to him, the people were spitting at him, pulling his beard, were hurling all kinds of insults. Everything was by God's doing, and yet those people were responsible for it, and yet God was not sinful in doing it. Psalm 105, verse 25. The psalmist says of the Egyptian experience of Israel, he turned their heart to hate his people. God turned the heart of the Egyptians, the hearts of the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. It's God who did cause the Egyptians to hate his own people. And this is the matter that many cannot say. And the reason why I personally don't listen to many preachers anymore, because I'm tired of the double speaking. They're not consistent. They double speak in an attempt to clean up God, to try to protect God. God is not in a daycare facility, okay? He does not need protection from anyone, especially his creatures, okay? He doesn't need protection. He'll protect himself. Verse (laughs) 5. Now it was told the king of Egypt, that the people had fled in the heart of the, in the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. So God turned their hearts against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from saving us. So even Pharaoh and his servants acknowledged that Israel had left their jurisdiction, left from their power and control and authority over them. They acknowledge that. We let the people go. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him 
Also, he took 600 choice chariots and the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. If you're coming out of slavery in that regard, you've got to be bold. Especially if it's God taking you out of it. So Pharaoh wants to repossess, to recover a people who have been set free, that he may continue to enslave them. And he comes with his chariots and his men, and that is with his power, to try and recover them back to himself. Verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them. All the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pihahiroth before Baal, Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. The Egyptians overtook the children of Israel who were on foot. And Israel had no chance against the Egyptians, against the chariots, the horsemen. So they found themselves in a very difficult situation. The sea ahead of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And nowhere to go. And no defenses. And see that it is God who set Pharaoh to come after them. Pharaoh did not decide this. It is God who said, oh, I need you to go follow my people. (laughs) I'm going to harden your heart so that you can follow them because I have some unfinished business. And many would be doing all night prayers and service rebuking the devil over this. (laughs) But they're not telling the truth. They are rebuking God. Difficult times of life are not brought by the devil. It's God who does it. It is God who brings impossible situations of life. And that for a reason, there is always a reason behind it. As Paul, the apostle of Christ, discovered and wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. This is a very wonderful text. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 to 10. Paul said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired, despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Listen to the reason. Why, Paul? Who brought it? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us 
in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul says we were brought under very difficult circumstances that we despaired even of life itself. We thought we were just dead. But it was God doing it so that we would not trust in ourselves. <laughs> but God did deliver. And he will deliver. He delivered in the past. He is delivering and he shall yet deliver us some more. But we should not trust in ourselves. And you can tell to, you can tell the people who are yet to have the Red Sea experience before them and the Egyptians hot in pursuit. They're very confident of themselves, very confident of their own righteousness. Until God slays them. You can tell, you can tell, you can tell that this person is yet to encounter the true God of the Bible. Yes, they are religious. Yes, they say Christ. Yes, they say Holy Spirit. But they are yet to meet with the true God of the Bible. Then they said to Moses, verse 11, going back to Exodus 14, then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may save the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to save the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. As soon as you come to the truth of Christ, trouble immediately comes. The Egyptians are on your case, especially from the other professing Christians. To do what? To take you back to bondage. It happened with the book of Galatians, with the Galatian churches, the adding back of the law to try and remove the offense of the gospel, the offense of the cross. It happened in the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew Christians were wanting to go back to Moses. Why? Because of persecution. The persecution that was coming because of the gospel. So the people said, leave us alone. We want to go back to the house of Hagar and live the life of slavery. We want to go back to the burdens of, of the law. It was better there. That's going to be their constant refrain throughout much of their wilderness experience. We want to go back to, to Egypt. We had chicken nuggets there, barbecue sauce, and some cucumbers, watermelons. This Jesus, this gospel of grace is creating more enemies for us. So it was better for us to save the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And that is how quickly we forget what God has done, the beauty of the salvation that Christ has brought about. And gospel haters even though they are professing Christians, still want to find a way to bring you back under the bondage of the law. That's what that testimony is all about. 
Fear does indeed distort even the fresh memories of God's faithfulness and truth. People can make you go back to the bondage that God delivered you from because misery loves company. And Moses said to the people, verse 13, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So Moses is preaching the gospel. He says, stand still. Stand in the liberty in which Christ has set you free. Do not be afraid because of the accusations of the law, the accusations of your sin, even of the devil, even of your own shortcomings, and you see the salvation of the Lord. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. These Egyptians that you see today, who are causing you much trouble, you shall not see ever again. And this was not speaking of just the death of the Egyptian army and the horsemen. We have to go back to the understanding of what Egypt represents. What did we say Egypt represented? God said it was the house of bondage. It is God who said it, who said that. So sin and law are what produces the house of bondage. The sin and the law are what brings about your bondage. And it is from this house that Israel had to be delivered by the death of the Passover lamb. And Moses says, these Egyptians that are causing you trouble, that enslaved you, sin, law, and the condemnation they bring, and even the devil, you shall see no more. They are coming to their end. Why? Because the law has to come to an end. Because Christ is the end for righteousness. The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They have to come to the end. There has to be a conclusion of the matter. And there are going to be some things that come to an end. But how is that? Verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. The Lord will fight and did fight. And you shall hold your peace. The battle of salvation belongs to the Lord. It is not yours to fight. The Lord will fight for you in the place of you and for your benefit. That's what that is saying. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. I guess Moses had been crying out to God, scared too. <laughs> but God said, tell the children of Israel to go forward towards the sea. They cannot look back to Egypt. 
go forward. And many people want to go back to the law. And think that they will be made better by the repeated exhortations to do better by the law. But we say, go forward. Keep looking to Christ, the author and finisher of faith. That's the conclusion of the matter in Hebrews. Because the Hebrew Christians were also trying to go back to Moses. And the Holy Spirit said, go forward, keep looking to Christ, the author and finisher of faith. Verse 16, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. So Moses, a type of Christ at this point of the story, is instructed to stretch his hand over the sea and divide it. Why does Moses need to stretch out his hand if God is he who is going to part the sea? Because that is linking us to the outstretched hands of Christ on the cross. The Red Sea represents the barrier that the people cannot cross on foot and not die. They could not swim across by themselves. Even the best Olympians could not swim across. They would drown. So it represents death. It represents God's wrath. It represents God's judgment. That has to be parted. And God's judgment will be parted by way of the outstretched arm of Christ that is in the picture of Moses. That is the only way the waters will be parted. Verse 17 and 18 And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them so I'll gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God says he was hardening Pharaoh's heart for a reason so that he may gain honor for himself over Pharaoh, not for Moses, for himself. In other words, the matter in which he determined to serve Israel was for the glory of his name. The manner in which he determined was for the glory of his name. He could have done this very easily. He would have come in the middle of the night and taken all of Israel out. And Pharaoh would not have known. By saying, I'm not going to make it that easy. I have to gain honor from this. So the sin of Pharaoh was to the glory of God. And so was your sin and mine. They did not just happen by accident. A lot of people want to give men and women more power than they have. We have power over nothing. God is he who has determined how much sin you're going to sin. He has determined the boundaries of how much you can go, how far you can go with your sin. 
He has determined that. Some people struggle with addiction and stuff like that. And for other people, that's not a problem at all. <laughs> but they have their own sins. It's God who has made the different boundaries for different people. He is 100% in control of it. So Christ Jesus could not be glorified for your salvation apart from your sin. And many professing Christians and preachers are yet to understand this connection between sin and God's glory. Sin was by God's ordination that Christ may be glorified, that God may be praised for the riches of his grace. That's Ephesians teaching. To the praise of the riches of his glory or of his glorious grace. Verse 18. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained. When I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God has gained honor for himself, which means Adam had to sin. He had to eat from the tree. There was no other possible way for him. Why did God put the tree there in the first place? Why did God allow the devil to be in the garden? God was not sleeping. He could have rebuked the devil and said, what are you doing there? <laughs> so the tempter would not have been in the garden if that was not God's intention. It had to happen that way. And that way God was already introducing to us the person of Christ. Christ was already in view. We're going to see some of that in Romans chapter 5. Let's go to verse 19 and following. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel. See that the angel of God is, the A is capitalized. Pay attention to that. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So there was separation between the Egyptians and the children of Israel, separation between the saved and those to be condemned, separated by light and darkness. God separates his people by the light of the gospel. The gospel is the light because Christ is the light. And in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, here the separation again from Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16, Paul says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. 
For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. We are to God. The way that Christ smells to God is how we smell to God. Not the way that you think you smell. <laughs> we are to God the fragrance of Christ. It doesn't go bad as the day progresses. You don't have to go back to Macy's and see if they have any more fragrances on sale. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. The aroma of death leading to death. Christ smells like death. The gospel smells like death to other people. When they hear it, they don't hear life. They don't see light. And to the other group of people, the aroma of life leading to life. Of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? See that division of light and darkness and also the light unto life and salvation, the smell, the aroma, the scent of life, and the scent of death. That division, darkness is death, light is salvation. So Christ is life, he is the light, he is salvation. And the angel, we are told, who was with Egypt, with Israel, who separated the light from the darkness is Christ Jesus. Who said in John 12, verse 35, The light is with you for a little while longer. <laughs> the light is with you for a little while longer. That's John 12, verse 35. Walk while you have the light. Israel is walking while they have the light so that the darkness may not overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And so Egypt also was walking in the darkness and they did not know where they were going. They were headed towards destruction. So it is he who led them through the wilderness. And hear this again from Apostle Paul, making commentary of this very part of the history of Israel. In 1 Corinthians 10, go to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 4. First Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food. You see, Paul is referencing it in a gospel sense to say this is not just some red cross, some red sea crossing. It's a gospel testimony. They all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So there's going to be more testimony in the wilderness. Christ is going to show himself in the testimony of the rock that God commanded Moses to be struck with the rod and that water would come out. And when Moses did that, water came out and the people drank and were satisfied. And Paul says that whole experience, the wilderness experience, even to the point of the bronze serpent, it was all Christ in there. He is the one with them and preaching himself. Exodus 14, 21. Exodus 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And that just happened in Florida. Tampa Bay area a few months ago when Hurricane Ian's powerful winds swept through. If you read the story and you're paying attention, you can go and find it online. A lot of pictures and videos. And NPR reported the story this way. This is what I thought to share with you. Hurricane Ian delivered an eerie omen to coastal Florida residents Wednesday morning as the powerful storm's winds pulled massive amounts of water away from the beaches and shorelines exposing the seabed that's normally covered by feet of ocean water. Four feet, 12 meters to be precise. Or was swept to the ground. I mean, like to the bed of the sea. Spectators and photographers gaped at the suddenly remade coastlines, but the water is expected to return with a vengeance. It took a while for the water to come back. The latest storm surge estimates, uh, sorry, the latest storm surge estimates predict up to 12 to 18 feet of water above ground level hitting an area from the Englewood south to Bonita Beach, I guess that's how you pronounce it, the National Hurricane Center said. So the seabed was exposed and people were seen walking on it, taking selfies. But Israel had no cell phones to take selfies with when they were crossing the Red Sea. But the National Hurricane Center issued a warning that the water would come back later, accompanied by large and destructive waves. It surely happened when the Egyptians also were swept over and buried. And that to say, the Resi, the Resi crossing phenomena was actually a true story. But this is not the first time it happened in Florida. It has happened before again. Yeah, the water's gone. Not just for two minutes. I think it was gone for maybe days. Yeah, because people were there just chilling. and I mean, it's crazy. Go and look for the pictures on Google later on. So the children of Israel, verse 22, went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, 
and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Red Sea crossing was more magnificent in scale because there was a whole lot more water involved. God held the water at bay, the judgment at bay, in order for his people to cross. Verse 23, And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Egyptians have to pursue. They were appointed to destruction. They were appointed to wrath. In this very place, they had to come to an end. And in this way. Verse 24. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and he troubled the army of the Egyptians and he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So God disabled the equipment of war to slow them down so that they would not be able to escape waves of water that were going to come back. And it was said, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And many would read past such statements. They would read maybe too quickly and miss the point of what is being said. The Lord fights for them. It is saying, it is Christ who fights all the battles for his people, for his elect, against the power and accusations of the Egyptians. That is, against Hagar and the testimony, against the Ishmaelites, against sin and law. The Lord is he who has ended into our place in union with us as our representative to fight for us. As Goliath said, choose you a man who is able to fight and let him come down to me that I may fight him. The Lord is he who entered into the fight to fight for us as our representative. So in the matter of the gospel, the matter of union and representation is very, very, very important. It's so important that if you miss union and representation, I'll guarantee you that you have a false gospel. Guaranteed. Because all matters of salvation were transacted in the one representative person. God is not looking to us individually in terms of righteousness. He is looking at us collectively as the body of Christ. The body that Christ represented in the one transaction, in the one fight, in the one man. Okay? Verse 26, we're almost done. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So the Egyptians have to pursue. Yeah? Uh, no. I was supposed to read to verse 27. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The same overstretched hands that brought salvation to Israel are they that brought an end to the Egyptians. Are they that sealed the fate of the Egyptians. In other words, the matter of salvation is a two-sided coin. Justification happens in the context of condemnation. They come together. They are opposite sides of the same coin. And that is why the Lord Jesus was crucified in the middle on the cross. He was not crucified on the extreme ends. He was in the middle because he is the mediator of life and death. Life on one side and death on the other. Justification on the one side of the coin and condemnation on the other side of the coin. Justification to the one thief and condemnation to the other thief. Christ in the middle. So the very act that parted the sea for salvation is the very act that was repeated to bring judgment on the Egyptians. Christ Jesus. Verse 28. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. The waters covered. They came back and covered, buried all the army of Pharaoh and their weapons of war. And they came to the end of their power to condemn God's people. Again, that is a gospel declaration to say not so much as one of them remained, not so much as one of them remained. Not so much. There's not a single violation of the law that was not completely buried in the sea of forgetfulness. And God says <laughs> to that, in their sins, and unrighteousness I shall remember no more. Not even a single one buried. they buried in the sea. In the sea of forgetfulness. There's not a single sin that now accuses you before God. That Christ did not already make payment on. Okay? This, just These seemingly simple words, they carry a lot of understanding if you don't rush through them, because God is the one giving it to us, not so much as one of them remained. <laughs> Every jot and tittle fulfilled by Christ. There's not a single part of the law that Christ did not fulfill. Verse 29. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left so the children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. Remember, these children of Israel were sinners. 
these were some serious sinners. They were some serial sinners. Serial and serious sinners. Both they were going to cause a lot of trouble for Moses. Moses was almost crying because of them. But God says they walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. The huge waves of water could not consume them, though they saw them. The wrath of God had been fulfilled for them in the Passover lamb. And that is how they crossed the sea of God's wrath without any trouble. The Passover lamb. That's what opened the way for them. Okay, verse 30. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So the Lord saved Israel, his people, that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. The Lord Jesus saved his elect from God's wrath on that day when his hands were outstretched on Mount Calvary. It happened on that day. That's when he saved these people. It happened on that day. He saved them. The Lord Jesus saved his church out of the hand of the Egyptians. That is out of the power of sin and law and his condemnation. Even the power of death. He justified them on that day. Because if he did not justify them, then he did not save them. If he did not justify them when he died, then he did not part the Red Sea. He did not bury the Egyptians in the waters of the Red Sea. It has to happen in the offering of Christ. That's the transaction. But we know that he did. And that he said it is finished. It is finished because the Egyptians have been buried. (laughs) And the text says, And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That is what Israel saw in the aftermath of the crossing. Dead Egyptians on on the seashore. And that to say, the elect when they have come to the knowledge of the gospel will see dead Egyptians on the seashore. They have the same testimony. They see the end of the law, which is the testimony of the New Testament, the end of the law. They have died to the law. They have died to sin. That's Romans teaching. Died to sin. Died to condemnation. Because they have been united to Christ. The end of justification, the end of condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To see the Egyptians dead on the seashore is to see the believer's rule of life. Because the redeemed are not under the law of Moses as the rule of life, as Israel was no more under the rule of Pharaoh (laughs) after they crossed. 
They are not under the rule of Pharaoh. They don't report to Pharaoh anymore. So Pharaoh is not the rule of life. Hagar is not the rule of life. Hagar and her son have been chased out of the house and the people have been buried in the sea. And God says, these Egyptians, you shall see no more. The only people who are seeing the Egyptians are the reformed people and their confessions of faith. They still want to put you under the power of Pharaoh, under the power of Moses, under the power of Hagar. Hagar does not give you Cheerios anymore for breakfast. She's out of the house. (laughs) There are many sermons being preached still that want to bring you under the power of the Egyptians to you who have been redeemed of Christ. And we say no to that teaching. And we end this way. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Paul says, In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2, 11 to 15. Circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So that's speaking to our union with Christ. That when Christ died and was buried and was raised, we were united with him. That's that is the transaction that God, God looks to. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So that is our natural state. We were just dead in trespasses and sins. But he has made us alive to God together with Christ even in the resurrection of Christ, having forgiven you all your trespasses, not some of them, forgiven, all of them. The forgiveness of sins is a done deal. How is that possible? Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. The handwriting of requirements, the indebtedness that we had to the law because of sin, whatever was written as us owing, he has wiped it out. It's not there. Wiped out. (laughs) And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He nailed it. And this is also what he accomplished. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The principalities and powers are the hordes, or is the horde of 
the fallen angels. These are the bad angels, troublemakers. He made a public spectacle of them, which means in the spiritual realm, when Christ was dying, there was a whole lot going on than what the people were seeing. Okay? And so all the testimony of Christ nailing things and making a public spectacle of these demonic forces was also captured in the testimony of Egypt against Israel and yet taken away and buried by the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb is the one that has the power behind all this. It is that blood that is the power to accomplish that. But that's what God is going to do in the New Testament. He ties everything to the power of the crucified Christ and his shed blood. And now, everything said, what is your responsibility in the matter of the gospel? How are you supposed to understand and respond to this? Verse 31. That's our last verse. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord <laughs> and believed the Lord and his seven Moses. That's your response. It's no do's and don'ts, people. The burden of the preacher is to declare the great work which the Lord did. And for his people to fear him, to honor him, to believe on him because of what he did. That's our response. We don't cause anything. Okay? You come to learn about what God already did. That's what he did. So the people feared and believed the Lord because of the salvation that, they, that he had accomplished on their behalf to the honor and glory of his name. Amen. We are done. All right, good people. Thank you for tuning in. I pray the Lord spoke some wonderful things to you. Okay? The message will be available in the different, on the different platforms sometime later today. Of course, it's there on Facebook. It shall be on YouTube and Simon Audio later on when we're done. All right. A happy new year to one and all. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.